The Motor Dream podcast is recorded on Walla Medical land of the Eora Nation. It always was and always will be the lands of the First Nations of Australia. This is the Motor Dream podcast. Welcome once again. The Motor Dream Podcast is open for business and you're warmly welcome to come inside. I'm Connor McNally and this is the podcast where my guests can dream a little about what they like to have in their dream garage if they had the budget and bank balance to afford it. We are now up to episode six and if you've been listening from the word go, thank you so much for sticking around. It's very much appreciated. If this is your first episode, welcome along. Enjoy this episode and if you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts and have a trawl through all the previous episodes readily available right now. There's more episodes to come in the coming weeks, so I hope you stick around. So if you're a newbie and are wondering what this nonsense is all about, I'll tell you. I tell my guests that one day they wake up and check their phones and they discover that they receive a text to say that they need to check their bank balance. They then open up their bank app and suddenly discover that their balance has gone to Elon Musk levels. They are instant billionaires. As soon as they discover their newfound fortune, they get an email from this mystery benefactor that tells them that they can spend anything that they like and buy any car, bike or machine that they want. But there is a catch. They are only allowed three cars, bikes or machines in their dream garage. It sounds easy, doesn't it? But trust me, it's bloody hard. You'll get to hear from drivers and riders from within the motorsport game as well as those who work within the industry. And on the odd occasion, you'll hear from some fairly well-known people who all share the same passion for cars as well as motoring. In this episode, I keep the trend of chatting with my media mates with someone who has an impressive CV over a quarter of a century and counting. As it turns out, my guest started her career in the same year as I did, which was 1998. In fact, she started her career one month before I did. Whilst I took the writing route, Philippa Guana took the radio route and she got her first role working with Southern Cross Stereo with the Triple M Community Switchboard before being elevated into the role of the original Gig Piglet. That role would see her report on the music news three times a day during the week. The Piglet role would be the beginning of a distinguished career that would quickly open doors to a true love of motorsport. She grew up in a family that loved Holdens and watched the Bathurst 1000 religiously, so she knew from a very early age that motor racing was where she wanted to be. Philippa has donned many hats throughout her 25-year career. She's been a writer, a pit reporter, TV producer and editor, media manager and social media manager. In fact, she was the first to hold such a role in Australian motorsport over a decade ago, which is quite a cool story. Her work has taken her around Australia and around the world, going to work in places such as Dubai, South Africa and the United States, and she continues her international involvement to this very day. 25 years on, she's come full circle and is now passing on all her knowledge onto the next generation of up-and-coming drivers through her media master coach business, all whilst dovetailing her commitments as media and operations manager for the V8 Super Ute series. And she still finds time to do some radio work for C91.3 FM in the MacArthur region of Sydney, as well as filing traffic reports for the Australian Traffic Network. By her own admission, she's not passionate of cars per se, but her passion for motorsport remains just as strong as it did when she was growing up, and she is very proud of what she's achieved in her career to date. 
I hope you enjoy my chat with Philip Iguana. Philip Iguana, welcome to the Murder Dream Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. It's always good to chat with you, Connor. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, you and I have known each other for, oh, I guess, more than 10 years or so, but you've been in the industry for a quarter of a century. You've been involved yeah. in motorsport for a lot of that time in various forms, in print media, mm -hmm. in radio, in television. But motorsport wasn't your first gig. Your first gig, and I remember it very well, <laughs> is yep. the gig piglet. You're the original gig piglet from Triple M in Sydney. I am. Yeah, I started in radio back in the late 90s wow. and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I actually started like volunteering because they had this community switchboard because um, we had no internet, right? So mm. I wanted to know when the car show was on, when the bridal show was on, what was that nappy ad I just heard on the radio two <laughs> minutes ago. They called the community switchboard. So that's how I got my foot in the door and then slowly got offered, you know, different work jobs and then I wanted to go on air. And the program director said, well, there's a position going for Gig Piglet. So, yep, three times a day I talked about all the gigs that were around Sydney. I went to different concerts and got to interview artists and it was pretty wild. But, oh, my goodness, it was so long ago. It was that They were the great days of Triple M. I loved it. Yeah, they, they were fun days. Actually, I think that was probably the 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 halcyon period post Doug Mulray. I think that was yeah. that was when they were really, really pumping. But you got to work with some really cool people. Andrew mm -hmm. Denton, Amanda Keller, Brendan Jones, who of course is now on WSFM. In fact, Amanda Keller is as well. Uh, yeah. The late Stuart Cranny, who you've got a very yeah. good relate, had a good relationship with as friends. Uh, the Veggies, Club Veg, Mal, Davi Mal Davies, yeah. And, yeah, sorry, Vic Davies and Malcolm Lees, I'll get their names right. Quite a number yeah. of people. Even I think, um, yeah, just... Todd, Todd Campbell as well from memory. There were some really Todd good Campbell, really good yep. names back in the day. And Ronnie Sparks was oh, on yes. Today FM, the level downstairs. So I work for Today FM Triple M. They're owned by the same network. So. Yeah, Southern Cross Australia. That's right. So it was really crazy when you were on the community switchboard because it was on the Today FM level. So you'd be listening to Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and then you'd have to run upstairs to Triple M that's all Akadaka and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> so it was different. Crazy. I know, and I didn't like rock music, but um, when I got a job as production assistant, it was on the Triple M level. So my dress turned from being girly to like cargo pants and T-shirts and rocking out with the boys and having pizza nights on Fridays. It was pretty <laughs> crazy. But, yeah, so many legends worked in that era, um, and I was so grateful that a couple of them I still keep in contact with and that I've also had um, extended radio experience with them when I moved to Campbelltown at C91.3, which was owned by Win TV. So, yeah, I'm really privileged to have such great names around me to inspire me and to learn from. Amazing. That's utterly amazing. The media is one of your two true loves. The other is motorsport, and you grew up yep. around motorsport. I guess I think everyone that, that really gets into motorsport, it's ingrained in you for life. Where did that Absolutely. love of motorsport first come from, and how did it interlink with the media side of things in the late, as, as you went down the line? The funny story is, is my grand, my late grandfather, his birthday is in the first week of October. So we used to always go as a family to spend the long weekend up on the central coast where he and Nan used to live and watch the great race. Mm. Cause that was when Bathurst was on, was on the long weekend before it got moved. So if Brocky won, we had double reason to celebrate because we were a Holden family. And if Dick Johnson won, we still had birthday cake. You know, that was pretty much the, 
the consensus. So my grandfather never bought any other car than Holden. We were a Holden fan. It was red all the way. My first car actually was a Ford and it was the biggest decision for me because it really uh, tugged at those heartstrings. And as a Holden girl, I couldn't buy a Ford, but it was all that I could afford, you know. So do I dare, do, do I dare ask what you actually bought? It was a Ford Laser Gear. Okay, that's not it so was, bad. It was a hatchback, but it had a little bum as a hatchback, and I didn't like it. I wanted a traditional hatchback. But, look, it it took me around the country. It was a great first car. It cost me $10,000 that I raised and saved myself. So um, it was a great little car by the end of it, and I actually still have a Ford key ring that my grandmother got engraved for my 21st birthday. So, <laughs> and I've still got it in her memory, even though I'm a Holden chick, and, yeah, we were a Holden family. But, yeah, so it started with my grandparents. Wow. Um, so I probably would have said go Brocky before many other words as a toddler, and that was just something we did every single year was watch the Bathurst 1000 together as a family. And that's how I... I grew up with the sport around me. I didn't actually realise until I was in my 20s that my dad used to do club days at the old Amaru Park Raceway at Grove. Mm. So dad had a valiant pacer. He was the traditional Italian stallion with the moustache and his valiant and <laughs> be a bit of a hoodlum. But I didn't even know that until I was working in the industry. So it's always been around, but I didn't ever think about it as a career. Media, I also didn't think about as a career. It wasn't until I walked into my first radio station a, a month after I started university and then I'm like, wow, this is what I want to do. So none of that was on the radar during my school years. I just enjoyed the sport for what it was. And then later down the track, as I started meeting different people and got exposed to other concepts, I thought, wow, there's actually something that I could actually make a career of as unconventional as it was. So coming from an Italian family where all my cousins went to university and got degrees and my sister did the same thing. Here I was talking on the radio, getting free tickets to like movie premieres and stuff. And there were a few questions in in the family, like, how can you make this a career? I'm like, but I'm getting paid and I'm loving it. So why can't I? So I was very grateful for the support that I had from my family to be able to do the unconventional route with my career and look where it's ended up. It's been yeah, fantastic. It's been fantastic. You've, you've gone around the world, quite literally, mm-hmm. in the 25 years. Uh, you and I actually started virtually around the same time. I started almost in a similar fashion, although I was already into motorsport long before, and then I kind of felt, you know, got more interested in the media side of things. You know, if I couldn't make it as a racing driver, I could make it in the media. And I, yep. you started about a month before I did. Uh, so you started around March. I started in April in the same year, 1998. <laughs> and we yeah. didn't cross paths for at least another 12 years until 2010. So, um, yeah, it's exactly. funny. And now we've remained, remained in touch since. But you've done a lot of things. You've done Supercast Championship, Australian Off-Road Championship, Global Touring Cars in South Africa, uh, yes. Formula 4 UAE, in uh, obviously in the United Arab Emirates, and the mm-hmm. Indy 500 for, for Matthew Brabham. I mean... For- that's, Very high like that month was, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. Currently you're doing the V8 Super Ute series. You're the media manager for that and also the operations manager. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. series has had quite a wild ride since it tr- um, transgressed from the V8 Utes that everyone knew and loved mm-hmm. to the Super Utes, uh, which is what we see now. It started off with the diesel engine Utes, which weren't that popular, but have now got the V8 engines in them, and somehow they've managed to gain not only a bit of a cult following, but a lot more entries now, and it's proven to be quite popular. It's one of those sleeper categories that have really, you know, become popular again. Why is that? Absolutely, because we've now got people that believe in it. That's why. 
And when you put effort into a category and the competitors feel like they actually belong and there's a purpose, that's amazing the things that you can do. So I got back from the UAE in about March last year and um, I got a message from Luke Cedars, who's a category manager for Super Ute, saying, hey, what are you doing? I need a bit of help. Don't know what we need. Can you come and check it out? So May 2022 was my first event. I went down to Winton to check it out and see how things were run and who was doing what and who was in control of what. And within like two hours, I'm like, right, let me lose. <laughs> Just let, <laughs> let, let me get at it. Let me fix this and fix that and organize this. And, you know, I've been doing um, category communications and operations for years, particularly in the Middle East. And I love this. I love taking fledgling categories and and shining them up, you know, turning them into diamonds. I did it with the Australian Off-Road Championship. I did it with Global Touring Cars in South Africa. I did it with F4 UAE, you know, doing the first six years there, turning it from six cars on the grid, our first ever race, to, you know, mid to high 30s in my last season. So I see such great potential in the V8 Super Youth. The competitors are amazing. Everybody that is competing in it wants to be there. No matter what people say on social media, we know all the negative flack that the category's mm. been getting. And, yes, there has been a couple of years of of rough times trying to find the right mix of car, engine, manufacturer, driver, support, sponsorship, the whole big puzzle. And I understand the emotional connection that people have with the old V8 Ute Racing Series. I was there in the early days, you know, when it was the Pro Car Series. And I remember. And, and Bill and Craig were running it, Bill West and Craig Daniel were running it. You know, I'm still good friends with Waza Love, who was two times champion. I was and I, you know, used to work at Campbelltown where the C91.3 radio station was. And I got my racing license through Ian Luff. And, you know, I know those early days of the V8 Ute racing. And I've I've been watching it and all my friends have been part of that, you know, from drivers, category, uh, com commercial, PR. So it's a special part of my career as well because of that Holden versus Ford rivalry that we created with the V8 Utes. And I can see that same sort of um, pit lane atmosphere, the family atmosphere, everyone working together and having a great time transitioning into the super Utes. Yeah. So now that we've got the right mix of ingredients, you just need someone to help steer it a little bit more and make it a bit more cohesive. So there's lots of work that we've been doing behind the scenes. You know, there's pretty much no idea that I've gone to Luke Cedars with and he's gone nut. Everything that I've suggested he's allowed me to run with, We've tidied up the communications internally. We've upped the ante with the with the media production, managing the socials, website, working with sponsors, the drivers. They're all working together to support the category. And I don't want to work with a category where the drivers aren't going to work together and support each other. And so by instilling these values and this professionalism into the category, no wonder it's going places, you know. So sometimes you just need to pivot a little bit. But it's never been a parked car because you can't steer a parked car, as they say. <laughs> exactly. So once you get everybody on the same page with the same vision and the same intention to grow the series, it's amazing what you can do. So, yeah, we we had 19 super utes at round one. There's a couple more coming on board. We actually don't have any more built. We have to build more super utes. You can't buy them. So for us to expand the category, we're now starting to build more so we can get to that magic number of 24 and we will get there. And I'm so proud of the drivers at Perth. You know, we put on such sensational racing. We've got great names, great pedigree. We're allowing drivers of all sorts of experience from guys coming out of production cars to the experienced ones like Ryle Harris and Adam Marjoram and, and Aaron Borg as well. So, yeah, I'm really proud of how, how much the category has grown and pivoted and changed and developed in 12 months. So just watch out for the next next 12. It's going to be even better. I bet. I absolutely think it's just going to keep growing. Uh, mm. Do you look at some of the other categories currently on show at the moment? And I'm not pointing at supercars or, or anyone else, 
But do you look at some of the other categories on show and think, I know what you need to do better. And if you if I had my way, I would I would do the things that should be better for the category that will be beneficial for them. Yeah, always, always. Yeah. I'm always looking at what other categories are doing, what the personnel are doing, what their brand is, how how on brand they are, whether they know what their key messages are. Mm. Like we know who we are as the V8 Super Ute Series. And I think if you don't know what you are as a category, what you stand for, then you do get a little bit lost. So you do need someone to come in and tidy a few, you know, loose ends. But, yeah, there are categories that I would love to work with. I actually had my eye on the Super Ute series when it was in the diesel era a number of years ago, thinking, oh, I'd like to work with that because there was so much that I could offer, but the timing wasn't right. I was still working in uh, running the F4 UAE Championship in Dubai. There was lots of other international projects I was working on. So, if it's meant to be, it'll come back around in my circle. But I'm love work, loving working with Super Ute Series and mm. they're not going to let me go. So I don't think I'm going to be going for a while. So <laughs> I can't, I can't wait to really. They've got you under Sorry. lock and key. They've got you under lock and key, which is a really good thing. Apparently. But, you know, I mean it for the long term. It's not just getting it to the 24 cars and then walking away. There's always something that you can improve. There's always more value add for the fans, the followers, people working in the industry as well. So we've got a lot of really exciting things coming up in the V8 Super Ute series. So yeah, it's going to be a great 2023 season, even bigger than last year. And then so will the following years. That's my aim is to keep growing small steps, but making sure that there's solid steps of growth that we can maintain in the long term. Just one more top, one more point before we move on to, I want to touch on Formula 4 and then I want to touch on um, Indianapolis. The yeah. Cedars family have been involved in motorsport for, for a very long time. They started out in super trucks many, many years ago. And of course, super trucks yeah. are no longer the, the powerhouse that they once were. And that's a sad reality. Uh, yeah. But they were a mainstay. They were very competitive and they've, They've evolved and grown into so many different classes over the years. They've raced in uh, Super 2. Uh, they've raced now nowadays in the Utes. And they've been mainstay in the Utes for a very long time. What's, yeah. that, what's that key to success for them as a family? Yeah, and Toyota 86 Oh, as yes, well. of course. Yep. And what's their, um, what's their key to success? They're just, they're they're motorsport nuts. They just love racing and they just love doing it right. And I love sitting with Luke in in hearing his ideas and where he wants to grow Cedars Racing Team and the V8 Super Ute Series. Mm. But they're just open to anything, you know. We're, We're not here to to trump anybody else up. We're not here to, you know, take from anyone else's pockets. We're just focusing on our product. We're focusing on why we love motorsport, getting the job done, doing it right and getting the best people. So, I don't like swearing, but Luke says that we're just cool people doing cool shit. And that's exactly the uh, the mantra for the Cedars Racing Team that then has been brought into the V8 Super Ute Series. But, yeah, it was great actually reconnecting with Luke and David um, early last year. I hadn't seen Davy Cedars for like 10 years because I've been away overseas. So we've put on a few pounds and got a few more wrinkles since we saw each other in the, the Supercars paddock. <laughs> But it's great working with them. You know, like nothing's a, nothing's a hassle. We just love our motorsport. We love having a, a category that we can build and work together and support. And we are a pit lane family that travels. And that's what I loved about my early days in supercars when I worked for the TV broadcast. We were just a family that traveled around mm. the country and we've brought that into the V8 Super Ute series, you know, and all of us drivers were on WhatsApp group. I'm not a driver. All of the drivers and us in the in the category were on WhatsApp group together. We communicate on a daily basis. So we... We, we don't just rock up at an event, go racing and go home. We maintain that friendship and that support throughout the whole season. We're even for the month of June doing the push-up challenge 
with reaction performance. So we're even doing fitness together. We're doing team bonding things together. So it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great paddock, a great pit lane family. And that all stems from the vision that, that Luke and David and the Cedars racing team and Bill as well have, have instilled in the, the product and, and the brand. Let's go a little bit back to supercars because uh, that's how you and I first met. Uh, you started out in supercars media, which was your first TV gig. You were actually a production manager at the time. And then it led to joining the Holden Racing Team under Scafe Sport or whatever, or who was running the team at the time, Walkinshaw Racing, whoever is owning it these days. <laughs> uh, but you actually created – quite a bit of history by becoming the first social media manager in Australian motorsport, being the first ever digital manager for the Holden Racing Team, which is, you know, yeah. like it's so common now, but back at that time, that was revolutionary. It was. It was different. So my first foray into supercars outside of radio, right, so I was a, a radio announcer and I'd report on the series, and then I worked as a journalist for multiple publications like Auto Action and V8X. And I did a bit of sub-editing for Wheels and Motor Magazine. So under then, back then it was the ACT Publishing. And then the associate producer job came for Supercars TV, which I did for three years, which I absolutely loved, you know. And, and I did television because I knew the sport 90% and TV was like 10%. I mean, I did host the Aussie Racing Cars uh, program for a year or so there. That's right. You also hosted the Bathurst 12 Hour as well. I did, yeah. I did one year of the Bathurst 12 Hour as well. So, yeah, I did a lot of television work. But I wanted to learn more. And I think as a producer, how can I be more well-rounded in my skills so that if I'm going to be a senior producer or a TV director one day, I need to understand what all of my staff are going to be capable of doing. So I was great at, you know, I was a paper pusher and I was doing all the entry lists and I was doing the commercial side and the, the graphics and the information for the commentators and working with the teams and all that sort of behind the scenes stuff that you do for TV. But I didn't know how to film and I didn't know how to edit. And I wanted to do them because if I'm going to be a TV director, I need to be able to direct camera operators, editing staff, putting packages together, putting TV shows together. So I thought I'm going to take a chance and go and increase those skills. So that was when the Holden Racing Team and, you know, then HSV, Holden Special Vehicles at the time under the War Control banner, had an opportunity for a social media manager to start for the 2012 season. And, yeah, before then communications managers were the only thing we really had comms managers or PR managers at racing teams. And I know that because I was working with every single one of them. So I was working with every supercars team. I knew who all the media personnel and there was no one specifically managing just social media. Mm. So not press releases, not interviews, not sponsor engagements, just what you found, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, website, YouTube, etc. Mm. So that was a really big step into the unknown. But I'm grateful for my experience at TV because I understood what the regulations were, what I could and couldn't film, um, what packages worked, how I put things together. You know, I was producing all of these things, but now I was in the deep end. You know, I was the one making it. So, I mean, I was filming in pit lane at my first ever event. I had people laughing at me and snickering at me. I'm like, you know what? I'm doing this for myself. I'm expanding my skills so now I know that I can be the best producer and director down the track. So, yeah, so 2012 was the first year that I did it and everyone was watching. And there are still some content made today that's taken inspiration for what I did back, you know, 10, 11 years ago, which is um, very heartwarming. But yeah, the year after, almost all the Supercars teams decided to employ a social media manager because it was the thing. They needed mm. it, you know. They needed to look after the, the digital content 
not just of the team and driver profiles and behind the scenes, but sponsor requirements, you know, how you engage all of that together. So it was a bit of a changing of the guard in the media landscape in supercars, but yeah, it really catapulted me then to transition away from supercars and develop my own brand, my own production agency, and then eventually going overseas and using the skills that I learned in supercars pit lane to then take me where I've come to today. And it did take you to places like South Africa with Global Touring Cars. You were their uh, TV and communications director for a good three years. You were also the head of media for FIA Formula 4 UAE, which you basically built from the ground up. Like, the series right. began in 2016, still going very strongly now. And as it turns out, you indirectly discover a young Aussie who's now gone all the way to Formula 1, <laughs> Oscar Piastri. I didn't discover him. Oh, I no. was, you know what? Back in two, it was December 2016, and Yas Marina Circuit was his first event. And all I heard was, "We've got an Aussie driver coming over." And, you know, I'd been there for a couple of years, and every time someone says there's an Aussie around, as an expat, you're like, "Where's the Aussie? I just want to hang out with the Aussie, have a minty, have a caramella koala, <laughs> talk about home, have a Vegemite sandwich." Anyway, Tim Tam. So Tim Tam. No, I don't like Tim Tams. Oh, actually. you Tim suck. <laughs> But yeah, Oscar was so tiny. He was 15. And I remember being in the garage at one one of the days and he was sitting and doing a seat fitting. I said, Oscar, how are you going to see? You can't even see over the steering wheel. You're so tiny. He said, oh, I can see the tops of the wheels. That's enough, which was great. He, that's all he needed to see because then he could work out how wide the car was and, was and where to hit the ripple strips and, and get the lap around. But yeah, he was there for three rounds. He couldn't do any more because he couldn't take any more time off school in the UK. But, um, yeah, he was a great kid and he had so much potential. And then he went to the British um, F4 Championship, the UK F4 Championship, and came second. And he raced also with someone called Logan Sargent, who's also in Formula One. Yep. And Logan was our Rookie of the Year in the 2016-2017 Championships. So to go from that first season of F4 UAE to now this year, having two of my original drivers in Formula One, it's a full circle moment for me. I'm such a proud mama of uh, <laughs> of those two kids. I still speak to Oscar. I saw him a couple of years ago when I was in Abu Dhabi for my last round at F4 UAE and still keep in touch with his father. And, and I'm just so proud of how he's going. He's the ultimate professional. He's a cool head. He's fast. Um, there may have been a little bit of negative press around the whole contract situation at the beginning of the year when he joined, he moved over. But, you know, he's taken it all with a grain of salt and focused mm. on the job and he's really going to be a future champion. I've always known that he was going to make F1 and it's just been great being part of the journey along the way and seeing him get to, he's just a freak, an absolute yeah. freak. He's a fantastic kid. Uh, I was very lucky to interview him a couple of years ago uh, for the EFTM podcast that I used to work with, with Trevor Long and, Oscar's a cool kid. Very quiet, very modest. Doesn't say yeah. too much, but his on-track results speak great volumes. And I think the fact that he's doing very, very well in a car that's subpar at the moment, we have to admit, he's mm-hmm. he's doing exceptionally good. And I think if he gets the right opportunity in the near future, he will be a world champion. I have no question about it. Absolutely. I'm going to have to unearth some of the original interviews that I did with him. That would be cool. Six seven years ago, and you can just see how how different he's um he's grown. But he was he was very quiet when I first met him. <laughs> he's Look at a, him now he can't stop talking. He's great with the media, great with the fans. So I think, I'm very proud to see how far he's come. I think that kind of helps when you got Mark Webber in the corner as well. Yeah, he's had a lot of people that's had steered along the way. He also had Gerald McDonald helping with some um, commercial and press yep. stuff for a while there. So Gerald used to run Holden Motorsports. So there's been a lot of good people around him. 
um, that he's been able to learn from. But Weber's definitely a, a great source of inspiration and guidance at the moment. So yeah, fingers crossed that it all goes well. But yeah, a very very talented kid. So I'm very proud. 2016, the same year you did uh, Formula Four. And also global touring cars, for that matter. You also yeah, did the Australian. It was a big, big year for me. It was a massive year because you did the Australian Off-Road Championship as well. You helped nurture that series to where it is now. But you went to the United States. You went to Indianapolis and you helped a Brabham take the step yeah. of racing in the Indy 500. That's Matthew Brabham, the son of Jeff Brabham, grandson of Sir Jack, of course. And he, in his only Indy 500 appearance to date, he qualified and finished the race. And you were a part Absolutely. of that. That would have been amazing. That's a career highlight for you without a question. Oh, undoubtedly. That is my career highlight. And it was funny because in 2006, I actually went to the Indy 500 on my own. It was just before I started working at um, uh, Auto Action and V8X magazine and doing it full time. I was going there for a family holiday and I said to the editor at the time, Stephen Otley, look, I'm going to the Indy 500. Do you want me to write anything or interview anybody? And it was actually my first ever feature story published in Auto Action was a feature with two Kiwi kids doing the, back then, the Indy Light series. So fast forward 10 years later, and here I am at the 100th running of the Indy 500, the greatest spectacle in racing in the world. And it was just an intense month of May. I literally landed and the next morning I was filming with Matthew every single day. I was filming Maddie appearances. We had the Chris Cole Frog Foundation that were working with the veterans. We had them doing the pit stop competition with us. That was incredible activation that we did. Um, with the Chris Crawford Fog Foundation and with Pertech as well. Uh, obviously, the whole team was headed up by Crusher, Brett Murray from Speed Cafe, who's been like a, a mentor, father figure of mine my entire career. It was just a massive, again, family environment. We all worked together. We had a great time. Geez, we worked hard. And we put a number of the IndyCar teams on notice. We were mm. doing things that they had never seen before. We we turned some heads and ruffled a few feathers, but had so much fun along the way. And Maddie is just such a great kid. You know, the friendships that we made in that month, we're all, we're all family and we always, we'll all still keep in touch. And it's really hard every May because we all remember back of what happened seven years ago. So we're going to have to do a reunion for the 110th running, I think. Yeah, it has to happen. It's, it's only what, three years away. And do you think an Australian can win the Indy 500 again? We know Will Power has done it, but do you think yeah. with the, with the current environment where there's so much competition and everyone is so close, do you think it's a, it's very much a possibility that an Aussie can win again? Oh, absolutely. But it's because I was just thinking of Scotty Mack, but he's a Kiwi, so we can't really yeah. take credit for Scott, can we, McLaughlin? No, we can't. We can't. <laughs> we can't. Sort of honorary. We is an honorary very, somewhere along the line. But, uh, it's very funny because I've, I've got a photo from when we were at the, there in 2016 with Maddie Brabham. There's a photo of us taken in the transporter and Scotty Mack was there. So Scotty and a few other supercar drivers came over and and was part of the, you know, the height. There was so much hysteria around this Aussie team being at the Indy 500 and qualifying for the greatest race. And um, I was always like, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And then Scotty be like, go Kiwi. You <laughs> 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 um, just, you just say, pluck it at first, give us a jando and, well, you know the rest. I know. <laughs> I've, I've known Scotty Mack since he was in the development series. So we, we go back away. So he's a great kid. I would love to see Scotty win the Indy 500. Yeah. That would be insane. As far as an Aussie, yeah, we've got Will, but we don't really have many other options at the moment. So, Well, we can only live in hope, can't we? We can only live we in hope. It just takes a while. It does. We'll move on to how you know, how deep of a car nut you are, but Mm -hmm. I want to I finish off a little bit here. It's come full circle with you and your career because you've learned 
everything in the time that you've done motorsport, writing, producing, directing, uh, media management, it's all now evolved into the business that you've got now, Media Master Coach, where you're now coaching the up-and-coming drivers across so many different categories and about the media management, like how to handle media, the pressures of questions being thrown at you and being professional, not just as a race driver, but also as a personality. You know, there's so many facets about media management that these kids don't know about as they're going going through the junior categories. And you're there helping them out and, and nurturing them. And that must give you some great personal satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. But I work with the ones that understand it, you know, because when you take a step back and look at the bigger landscape of sport, I mean, today's athletes are much more than athletes, right? Mm. They're marketing gold for some of the world's biggest brands. You know, some athletes are making way more money even off the field than they are on the field. But when you're working with the young ones, particularly the juniors, you know, so let's go back to Formula 4 UAE, where I was working with 15, 16, 17-year-olds. They're there with their driver coach. They've got uh, engineers working them about their performance on the track. Maybe some have got a bit of a nutrition program. Maybe some of them have got a PT program. None of them had a media program. They didn't even know how to use Instagram. They didn't know how to do interviews. Every time I want to do an interview with one of the drivers, they'd be like, what are you going to ask me? What are you going to ask me? (laughs) I'm like, oh, if only I could help you understand what the media requires, you wouldn't be so nervous. You'd be way more confident. Mm. And so when I started teaching them about what to actually expect, they performed so well. And seeing these young ones with so much potential, if you want to be the next Lewis Hamilton, you've got to start creating those habits in the early stage. You can't wait until you're in your 20s to create those media habits to build your brand. You're building your brand as an athlete from the very early stages, even in karting. You feel like under 15, you know, 10 to 15 years old, you want to be professional. You still have to get all your ducks in a row to start promoting yourself because unless you've got lots and lots and lots of money, how are you going to be able to get sponsorship? You have to build yourself into a brand that companies want to partner with. So by seeing all of the gaps that these young ones had in their knowledge and experience of the media, they didn't realize that the media is the one thing that can make or break their career, but they didn't know anything about it, which is why I decided to develop Media Master Coach and put my programs in place to teach these young young ones about how important it is, not just about answering questions in interviews or how to dress or how to behave, but How do you build yourself into a brand? How do you create your media assets? How do you build networks and relationships? Mm. How do you sell yourself to sponsors, to teams? How do you get the press to even be interested in you? You know, the media aren't going to come to you. You have to go and do the hard work. So by laying it all bare, covering lots of different things, the mindset that you need to be able to build yourself into that brand, how to work with sponsors, how to work with the press, how to work with teams, how to do your interview training, how to set up your social media, your media assets, how to even do crisis management, how to behave in certain ways to avoid scandals. I think we see more scandal stories in the news these days than Mm -hmm. actual success stories. How do you avoid that? And then how can you do all of these things that will actually set yourself up for having a career in the media. Because what happens when an athlete wants to retire? Oh, they want to go be a commentator. They want to go and work in TV land, right? They don't want to go and and do coaching. They just want to work in TV. All right, how do you get there? So all of these things are so important for these young ones to understand. And if they want to learn, they're the ones that are going to take it and run with it. So I love imparting this experience because... There's so much that when you're young, you're not exposed to. So I work with the young athletes. I also work with their parents 
And I work as a bit of a go-between as well. So the parents are usually the ones that are managing their Facebook and their Instagram and mm. doing meetings with sponsors, but they have no idea how to put proposals together. They have no idea how to create their son or daughter into a brand that's worth being partnered with to, to get better drives and better opportunities to race or compete, no matter what the sport is. It could be motorsport, it could be cr- cricket, it could be soccer, it could be rugby, it could be anything. So, yeah, I work with work with a lot of different age groups, and also parents and also teams that manage lots of athletes just to try to get the message out and the um the education as well to so they understand what they're facing that if you're going to be a professional athlete and you want to make money out of this as your career you're going to have to do a few things first and that's where media master coach comes in just to uncover all of these different aspects that they really need to understand if they want to take their sporting careers seriously there's one point you mentioned just before about scandals scandals have been I guess now a part and parcel of of mainstream media, and it's it's a hindrance more than a help. I think, uh, yeah, they're all yeah, particularly when it comes to football, like rugby league and AFL, they're so scandal ridden. It's very rare that we get scandals in motorsport, but uh, is it an eye opening experience when some of these kids look at some of the scandals of like you know, football, regardless of what code, and and realize that it, how damaging it could be to their career? Oh, absolutely. They they do see it. And when you show them examples of what can go wrong and how badly it can go wrong, they do wake up. But then you also have the other side that particularly with young boys, I've experienced with some of my students is that when boys are around boys and they're overseas and they've got these really cool racing jobs, they still go act like boys. Mm. So it's really hard to control that. So it does take a lot of effort to go, hang on, settle down. Don't put that picture up. Don't say that on Instagram. Don't say that on your Facebook stories. So they do understand, but it does take a long time for it to really sink in. But I'm trying my hardest to make sure that they understand before they go and do something wrong and learn from that experience because I don't want them to have to make the mistake for them to not do it again. So it's trying to prevent that. But, yeah, it is quite eye-opening when you show big scandalous stories and how people lose their complete career. And that's one of the fears that a lot of young drivers have. They don't want to look silly. They don't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to lose sponsorship. You know, most of the time their parents have paid for a lot of their upbringing in the sporting industry and they don't want to, uh, they don't want their parents to to lose all of that investment in them as well. So there's a lot that is on the line, but you can't, you can't manage every kid every second of the day. You just hope that you're passing on the right knowledge and experience and examples for them to then make the right decision. And if unfortunately it goes the wrong way, well, then there's ways to handle it. But hopefully that hasn't happened with any of my students yet. So, um, but it is a it is a serious part of the industry, particularly now that everyone has mobile phones, you are always po- possibly being captured in some capacity, photo, video, audio. So that's why I try to instill in them how important it is to be on every time you leave the door of your house, hotel, uh, transporter, pit garage. You have to be on your best behavior all the time, which is why you need to put those skills into place early because, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So if you're going to be a be a ruthless kid in your teens and not learn how to behave properly until you're in your 20s, it's too late which is why I also teach behavior and appearance and attitude as part of my program, because that's the best way that they can avoid getting into the newspapers for the wrong reasons. If they can just work on all of those presentation aspects of their career as well. This is the Motor Dream Podcast.
All right, Philippa, let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of how passionate you are about cars. Maybe not about cars, but you definitely are passionate about motorsport. Well, I want to know how much of a car enthusiast you might be. We already know your first car, which was the Ford mm-hmm. Laser with the yeah. little little butt end on, on it. I thought you might have had like the, the laser from the mid-80s, you know, those little boxy-type lasers, the ones like yeah, Scaffy used no. to race. <laughs> no, no, this was, uh, this was in the 90s, the 90s model, I think it was. Yeah, I can't okay. remember. It was so long ago. Oh, they were cute cars back in the day. I just want to know just a little bit more of how much you love mm-hmm. cars, as you know, as a person. Here's a good one. Which car do you wish was never made? If you could look at any car that you've you've ever crossed paths with, is there any car you wish should never have been made in your lifetime? Uh, not not really. See, I'm not a car aficionado. Motorsport, okay. yes, right? But I, my parents had a Honda CRV. Yeah. And it was horrible to drive. It had a high center of gravity. The wheels were too thin. It was just clunky. I was, I was so glad when they got rid of that car. So, but... <laughs> That's pretty much the only one. Okay. What about the first road trip you remember going on? Right. I've done so many road trips. I actually used to do the run between Sydney and Adelaide a lot because I lived in Adelaide Mm. uh, for a couple of years during my radio days. And I used to do that 15 and a half hour drive in one day. In one day? In one day. (laughs) Are you mad? Yeah, I was. I was. I little had a little black um, Toyota Corolla, which was one of my favorite cars ever. A little hatchback, and yeah. she was a beast. I loved it. You did um, some. Tra- I, you did some track days in that car too, didn't you? I did. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I, I like all road trips. I've done. I went to. I flew to Adelaide and I drove up to the Love Day Adventure Park for where the little mini trophy truck races were on. Mm. And that was a good couple of days of being out in the middle of nowhere and dust and dirt and barbecues and country music and a few beers. And it was a great, great vibe. I loved going to all the Australian off-road championship events. We used to drive a lot yeah. interstate. Not to, I didn't drive to Kalgoorlie. That was a bit far. But um, the ones in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland, I would drive to a lot too. So I haven't actually done a road trip for the sake of enjoying it as a holiday, but that's something I would love to do is to buy a van, kit it out and travel around Australia I even was joking with, um, well, half joking with Luke Cedars at Super Utes about it, going, maybe we can put some Super Ute livery stickers all over the van. I can just drive to all the Super Ute events and just see, <laughs> see a bit of Australia at the same time. So you never know. I'd it's love a, to do that. It's so. not a bad idea, actually. You should take it up. I think it would be pretty I, cool. I think so. It would be. Yeah. Well, what about car fat pet peeves? Are there anything that really irks you, like fluffy dice or maybe even the <laughs> car, the stick family? <laughs> Stick family figurines. I, yeah, I don't like the stick figures on the back of the windows. The dice, that was so 80s. <laughs> that reminds me of my auntie doing that. Oh, really? Um, what about the rosary yeah. beads? Rosary beads on the... Well, my father, being Italian, my father's quite Catholic. He yeah. did have a St. Anthony medal hanging off the rear vision mirror because St. Anthony is our patron saint. So that was very wog. Yeah. I'm happy to admit that. So never rosary beads in the car. But, yeah, all that, like, don't distract yourself. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that's a that's a contentious topic in itself. <laughs> Speaking of contentious topics, eating in yeah. cars, yes or no? Absolutely. I do it all the time. Yeah? Yes. But I need to have the cup holders a bit bigger because my coffee mug doesn't fit in the one that I have in my Mazda at the moment. So that's a bit of a peeve. I don't want to have to go and spend extra money to get a cup that's half a cup holder size and then fatter <laughs> at the top and 
but just make the cup holders a bit bigger. Well, I guess that falls into the category of which feature would you like to bring back in cars? And that would be bigger cup holders or more cup holders in your case. More cup holders. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's I, I currently actually drive a Mazda 3. I did have an X-Trail. I loved that four-wheel drive. I traveled everywhere, but a kangaroo put the end to that. So mm. um, I've got this amazing manual Mazda 3. It's got a CD player still in it. It's great. I can still connect my my iPhone and play my iPod stuff and my nice. digital music. So I've got the best of both worlds at the moment. But I think actually there needs to be more manual cars. There are so many of us yes. that love driving manual. I hate going to um, rental car companies and I always, they never have a, a manual option. It's always automatic now. I love driving manual cars, but they never have them anymore. So. Yeah, I'm the same. I prefer manuals over automatics. I mean, my current car at the moment is an automatic and it's a hybrid and there's nothing wrong with it, but I just, and like the sequential shift, because you can do the, like the Tiptronic, I'm not a fan of it. It just doesn't work for me. Like it works, but it just, it's not the same. It needs to be a full manual sequential shift or a manual gearbox. And I'll, and that's all I'm happy to work with because I just love driving manuals. It's all I want. Long live the H pattern. Exactly. Um, Which is a bit of a dying art, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Last question. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Last question before we move on. What was the worst car that you've ever owned? Um, I did have a crap Toyota Corolla. So when my, so one of my favorite cars ever was that 2001 black Toyota Corolla that mm. I, that I did drive around the country with my little black beauty and uh, did lots of track days at Oran Park in her. You, it was, you, she you was actually amazing. did, you actually did the very last track day at yeah. Oran Park. The very last day it was open before it closed. And I did. It was amazing. I spent so many years doing track days. I did my OLT there, got my racing license, my P's there. And I just loved racing that circuit. I was mm. so upset when Oran Park closed. Same. But after that particular black Corolla died, actually the Delbertos, they have the Holden dealership back then up at Echuca. So they had this little crap box of a white secondhand Corolla with dents and paint coming off. I needed something in the meantime just to like bridge me to get back to Sydney. It was like three grand or something. <laughs> so it was horrible. It had stained seats. Oh. And I thank goodness for some of the supercar friends that I had to like touch up the paintwork and get a few like dents and stuff out of it. But I needed something and thank God for the Dalberto family for helping me out. I mean, I know Alan and Tony for so long. So that was the worst car ever. But then when I got rid of that, I got my X-Trail, which was amazing afterwards. So we all have one of those cars that just make you want to throw up, right? Yeah, that was exactly. The one. <laughs> oh, I couldn't imagine how bad it would be. Actually, I remember owning a BMW 1602 and it had a, it was always reeking of fuel. It had a leak somewhere. Like it was, then it was, and it was just going through petrol like no tomorrow. It was just, and it shouldn't have, in hindsight, should never have been on the road. But oh, it was a nice car to drive, but that was just, oh, just dangerous. Correct. Just dangerous. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Move on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, well, I'm actually going to ask about the best memory in the car. That car? Or best memory in a car, in a car. In a car, because the best memory of that car was getting rid of it, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, Um, what is your best memory in a car? Like, it can be anything. Yeah, one of the things I loved about my X-Trail, because I'm only short, right, I'm five foot four, and the X-Trail rear seats folded down flat. So I actually went to Clark Rubber and I got a mattress, and I used to travel around Australia to all my events and go visit family interstate, and I'd love sleeping in the back of that thing. So it was almost like I could just go into a caravan park and get a campsite 
uh, with a, a an ensuite and I'd sleep in the back of the four-wheel drive and have a shower in their facilities and off I go again. It was fantastic. I loved having that um, uh, that flexibility in a road car to mm. turn it into like a minivan, even though it wasn't a minivan. But I spent so many nights sleeping in the back of that thing at off-road events as well. It was it was so much fun. So I loved doing that. Fantastic. Which is why I want to get another four-wheel drive or a van to travel around Australia. It was so much fun. You do have a passion for traveling, that's for sure. And and probably, yeah. you know, doing all that traveling around the country, yeah, it, it, it gets ingrained in you and you just have that passion to do it more often. Absolutely. Well, even though I'm half Italian, the other half of me is Aussie. So my Australian family originates from Tenerfield. So I've got a lot of country roots on my mum's side. And yeah. I just, I do, I love exploring Australia. And I've done so much traveling overseas. I've worked on five continents and I've done some crazy stuff internationally. But now that I'm back in Oz, I really would like to explore more of this country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really take the time away from my crazy schedule, if I can, at some point to just, yeah, go and go and smell the roses and just hit the road. Actually, one of the best road trips I ever did, I've got to say this, when I was at the Holden Racing Team, I did the transporter run up to Darwin. So the boys left Holden Racing Team at Clayton in Victoria and drove up to Adelaide. I flew to Adelaide to see some family. Mm -hmm. And then from Adelaide up through Port Augusta, Cooper Pedy, across the border, up through Catherine towards uh, Darwin was an incredible five days on the road. It was awesome. Amazing. I'm sure there's some photos that you've got in your collection that you can look back yeah. from time to time and go, wow, I did that. Absolutely. I'm going to have to write a book, I think. I think you're going to have to. You're going to have to. <laughs> Philippa Guana, we're getting to the crux of this now. Yeah. One day you wake up. It might be even, you know, you wake up after maybe an overnight shift for your, your radio work or something else or your, you know, your motorsport commitments, and you check your phone, as everyone does when they wake up, and you find that there's a message on there that says, check your bank balance. And you think, oh, come on, mm -hmm. this is this is crazy. You check your bank balance, and you, you realise that your bank balance has skyrocketed to Elon Musk levels. You are now a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, and you're like, what the hell is this going on? <laughs> you then get a message from this mysterious benefactor in an email, and it says you can spend whatever you like. You can buy any car, bike, or machine you like. But in order to keep the money, you're only allowed three machines in your dream garage. So with that in mind, what is the first car that you would have in your dream garage, Philip Iguana? Okay, so I would love to have my black Corolla back. You miss she it, don't you? I do miss that Corolla. I know it's just a Corolla, but it was my first ever brand new car. I spent so many days out at Oran Park doing track days with her, even to the point where my mechanic was not far from Oran Park Raceway. And I used to drive from the racetrack to the mechanics to put new brake pads on because I was like metal on metal, like I had none left. <laughs> I have to bed the brakes on the way home. <laughs> As you do. So I think I always need a car, something like that, where I can, that's manual, that I can fang around, do track days, just have a bit of fun in. Um, I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not big on the brands. Look, I lived in Dubai for eight years. I've seen enough Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Porsches to last a lifetime. So I'm not really into that sort yeah. of stuff. It's more of the emotional connection to cars that I love. Yeah. The other one is definitely I'd buy like a Mercedes Sprinter and do that up into my van Ooh. to live on the road and travel around Australia. That's a good idea. The Mercedes Sprinter, it's not like your normal Mercedes Benz. Like it's like a commercial vehicle. It's a van, as you said. And it's, yeah. you could. It's big. Yeah, and you can turn it into a camper. 
That's what Absolutely. you want to I, I've been doing my research. I follow a lot of van life Instagram accounts. <laughs> I would love to do that. See, my, my, my parents have a Holden, Colorado diesel four-wheel drive and they're currently pulling their caravan around New South Wales on a month-long trip. Yeah. But I don't want to have to pull a caravan. So I just want to have my van and travel around Australia and see the sights and um, there's a couple of my girlfriends that have thought that if they never end up with blokes, we'll all just get a, a van ourselves and just go travel around Australia in convoy and have a great life. It'd be awesome. So That's really cool. Uh, actually, I want to go back to the Corolla thing for a moment. Now, just looking at, I remember the 2001 Corolla. They actually were a very nice looking car. They, they're they just, they look even great now, more than 20 years on. And of course, that particular shape won a number of Australian Rally Championships in the hands of Neil Bates back in the day and Simon Evans as well. But did you do anything to that car? Other than, you know, betting in brakes and the like, did you do anything to that car? <laughs> no, nothing. Stock standard. Nothing. Stock standard. So all, all it really had was tinted windows, had a bit of a rear spoiler. Um, it only had automatic windows in the front and manual windows in the back. Like I got a what? half half. Yeah, it was a Corolla Conquest. So it was like not your base model, but second up. Yeah. Um, no, I just put really good tyres. I had really good tyres, great brakes, and my mechanics were racers as well. So they knew exactly what to do to my car to tune it so I could have the best experience on track days. I was never serious. I just wanted to go and have fun. And I wanted to learn the craft because I knew that that would also enhance my career in the industry as well. So, no, it was completely stock standard. I had so much fun in it. And I did some really good times. And that, Going over the dog leg at Oran Park in that car, I, I got so close to the wall, but that car handled it every single time. <laughs> but the drive on milk milk aspect of the, the front straight was awesome. That so. is awesome. I did laps around Oran Park. I had a little Daihatsu Syrian, a uh, green Syrian GTVI. So that was their hot hatch back in the day. And I I did the South Circuit and I you know, did you know, laps around that. I think I got about 61 seconds out of that for a little 1.3, which was like pretty cool, manual and everything else. And, uh, oh, they were fun, absolutely fun days. Uh, there's one regret, one regret I do have, and that's not racing at Amaru Park. I was a oh, l- yes. little late for that. And uh, I, I loved Amaru Park. But, um, yeah, that was just one track I really wished I would have enjoyed doing. I think that would have been a lot of fun, particularly in that type of car. Absolutely. Well, I've lived in Kellyville a lot in Sydney, which is not far from Annengrove, yeah. here where Amaru used to be and we lived on five acres so you could actually hear the day night meets and the echo of the racing through the gully mm. so sometimes if it was late night racing it'd still be like eight nine o'clock at night it's like well those bloody race cars just go to bed you know we want to get some sleep <laughs> um but yeah i do drive past it quite often i have pulled in there and look at the houses that are currently at that circuit it just breaks my heart it I would does love to in its heyday and i would have loved to have seen my dad do a track day there i've got photos of him there but i've never actually physically seen him do it so uh-uh. yeah that that all the old racetracks I'm so upset that they've gone and I do a lot of work out at Campbelltown as well for the radio station still as you know contract work and I just can't go to Oran Park anymore because I it just brings either. back too many memories of being at the track. I gotta ask one more question in regards to racetracks before we go on to the last car in your dream garage Wakefield mm-hmm. Park at the moment and mm-hmm. we know that's currently closed due to circumstances uh, that were you know enforced by the look by the courts recently it's just been bought out uh by the shelley family who of course run deputy.com and have links to the shelley drinks business from many years ago do you think uh they'll re you know bring it back to the the halcyon days as, as quickly as possible if they get the oh, chance to reopen ha- i would love that it's it's not just about racing it's about all the businesses that you know that that circuit supported mm. you know i've 
very close friends with Johnny Boston. Who I know him tackle. as well. Yeah. So Boz and I used to work at Triple M's together 25 years ago. You know, he was Kermit the Rock Frog on the Rock Patrols and I was a gig piglet. So seeing what he's had to do to to pivot his business because he was based at Wakefield Park. Um, I was always close with um, Michael Navybox, who unfortunately has passed away, but he used to run his racing school down at, right. at Wakefield Park as well. So there's so many people in our industry that have had long associations with that circuit built their careers, their businesses around. It's great for the local community. And I really am upset when these circuits close down because of noise or neighbours or complaints. Or It's the same thing in Dubai. You know, where the racetrack is in Dubai is in a town called Motor City. Like, it's not called Tree City. What are you expecting to be in Motor City? Motors, cars, automotive. And there's always people that are complaining about the Dubai Autodrome running, particularly for the Dubai 24 Hours Endurance Race that's run once every year there. But if you're going to live in an area where you know this infrastructure exists, then you're accepting that's part of the infrastructure in mm. the community. Yes. So I... it's really disheartening when people start complaining for whatever reason. But these these racetracks aren't just about going racing. It's driver development, teaching kids how to use speed in the right way, you know, keeping speed off the streets, giving people um, car control skills, allowing businesses to run. So if Wakeful Park can get back up on the ground again, it would be incredibly satisfying to see that whole industry down there that has infiltrated into our wider motorsport industry just flourish again. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it needs to happen. And I know, I know they're trying to get it back up and running, but until that physically happens, yeah, it, it's going to suffer. Well, it's, the sport's going to suffer in a massive way, and, it, and it's not a good thing either. It's a detriment not only to the, the town of Goulburn, but to all the businesses that have set up around that district in support of Wakefield Park. It's it's really it's really demoralising to see that happen. It is. I think the one good thing about the motorsport and automotive industry is that we're very adaptable, Yeah. and no matter what's thrown at you, you'll always find a way to pivot and, and find a new way of doing business, which is what we've seen. But sometimes it's like, really? Enough tests. Do we really have to keep changing and changing and changing because of bureaucracy? It'd be really nice for people just to to run their business as they always have and just leave all that red tape behind. But my fingers are crossed. I really hope Wakeful Park can get back to what it used to be because it's so important for so many and so many industries. I agree with that. The final car in your dream garage. <laughs> what is it? Well, that's one I already own. But uh, if I had that... Elon Musk bank account, what I would do is fix it up. And that is my grandfather's pride and joy, which is the 74 HQ Holden one tonner that I have in the garage. It is just the most amazing piece of equipment. And I love sitting in it. There has a, a few modifications need to be made because I can't really drive it at the moment. It drives. I just can't fit in it. So <laughs> um, my legs are too short. So, I mean, it, look, I'll paint, paint the picture. It's a mustard yellow cab chassis. It's got a wooden wooden floorboards at the back. So the tray is all wooden with wooden side skirts. It's a 253 V8, free on the tree gearbox it's a bench seat so it's all the original holden interior that you expect from holdens in the 70s yeah it's all original um even the wheels it's got white white wheel hubcaps it's got um uh, all the old you know little individual h-o-l-d-e-n letters on the front bonnet it's a kingswood there's no kingswood badge so i've got to put a kingswood badge on it um, yeah, the, I can't actually reach the pedals to depress the clutch fully with my legs so short. So I need to change the rails for the bench seat to push it a little bit further. <laughs> but I 
I think I know a few people in motorsport that can help me with a bit of engineering to fix it. So I'm I would love sure. to do that. I'd love to do that one up. Oh, you're not taking the Kingswood. I've just baked on the tow bar somewhere along the line. <laughs> you get those <laughs> old jokes. It. It's get... funny, you know, because I've, I've always loved that ute. My grandfather passed it on to me when he passed away. And before he did, I said to him, oh, I'd like to, like, make it a bit more modern. You know, I wanted, like, black metallic paint. I wanted to strip all the wood on the back tray and like stain it. I wanted like a beautiful Holden emblem, you know, burnt and grained into the back of the rear, the rear of the car. I wanted to chrome all the white bits, get the white off it and chrome it all up. I said, what do you think, Grandpa? And he said, oh, I like her the way she is. So I can't do the modifications because my grandfather would be rolling in his grave. So mustard yellow it is. And I'll just have to just tidy up the other bits. So, yes, we've repainted the white bits white. They're still white. There's no chrome. But, yeah, I would like to make her absolutely sparkling brand new again as much as I can. She's a she's a treasure of mine. I'll never, ever, ever sell her. Never. And it's beautiful. How many kilometres or how many miles on it does it have? Miles. Oh, about 150,000 miles, I think it is. Grandpa didn't drive it that much. Um, but I actually do get offers for it. I'm actually quite sensitive of opening the garage door so people don't see that it's in the house <laughs> just because I just don't want anyone knowing that it exists because there's not that many around. But when my dad takes it out and fills it up with petrol at the petrol station, he does get people saying, oh, can I buy your bench seat? Can I buy this? Can I buy that? And it's like, over my daughter's dead body, I have to go through her first. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, people have tried, but no, it's just, I was always against the HQ series because they just keep using up all the original parts. So, um, but you know, I love, I love HQs and I love seeing that series thrive as well. I'm very part of the HQ Holden community. So there's not that many around these days in original Nick. So I'm very proud to be a, an owner of an original Holden considering that there's not that many around anymore. That's quite extraordinary that it, a car that's almost 50 years old is still in original condition yeah. and it's yep. still going. It's not rusting. Absolutely. No, it starts first go. Starts first go. And sometimes I just sit in the garage and start her up and rever and smell the fuel and off we go. Like <laughs> there's nothing like an original V8 with petrol in it. You Absolutely. Know? It's, just, it's, a, it's a, and the sound is just so throaty. I, uh, I, lo I love that car. I don't drive it enough. It's on historic plates now, but I do have my grandfather's original plates in storage still. So I can fix her up down the track if I want to put them back on. But I was very sad when I had to take the original plates back to the RTA or the Roads Roads and Traffic Authority to um uh to get updated brand new ones because they uh, they said that the speed cameras couldn't read them anymore they were that old. <laughs> so, oh wow! Yeah, the number plates are the only new thing on the car. Oh, Everything wow. else is original. That's a, that's incredible. It's a shame you can't buy the number plates because yeah, it'd be nice to actually keep them as a keepsake. It would be really yeah. cool. It's just a shame because you can it do it in be. you can do it in Victoria, but you can't do it in New South Wales, and I find that's a bit of a travesty. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, they've given me the exact same number plate that my grandfather had, but just reprinted. Yeah. So I've got those in storage, so I can always put them back on if I want to take the historic plates off. So there's still a sense of the car as it was when my grandfather first bought it in the seventies. But yeah, I would like to have the time and the energy to fix that you up. doesn't need that much. It's a bit of tidying up, but uh, yeah, it just needs exhausting amounts of hours <laughs> to be put into it that I don't have at the moment. Hours that we all wish for in one day or many days. So just like Elon Musk's bank account. That would be great. Correct. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, to dream, to dream, to, uh, to have the HQ Ute, uh, a Mercedes Benz Sprinter and your old, 
Corolla from 2001 in your dream garage. That, that's <laughs> that's that's actually pretty decent when you think about the emotional attachments that you. Okay, the Sprinter maybe because you want to go, you know, traveling around Australia. I totally understand that, but the Corolla and the Ute, they're emotional yeah. and they obviously have a lot of significance for you in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't matter what car I own moving forward, even whether it was my X-Trail that I had last, the Mazda that I have now. Like, I'm not a big car fan. And it's funny, you know, when people find out that I work in this industry, the first question they always ask is, oh, what car do you drive on the road? <laughs> like, nothing special, mate. Nothing special. But my HQ is in the garage, so that's my special car. But, yeah, I love that Corolla. I just love manual cars. I love those hatchbacks. I love being able to drive drive a car rather than a car driving me. Yeah. yeah that. that we've lost these days in in the cars that we now have I, i'm not one for fancy stuff like i said you know in dubai you can have every car you can possibly imagine and i could have a ferrari go down my my street here in sydney mm. and i just wouldn't bat an eyelid because i've seen them all but it's the emotional connection is why we love our cars and it's why we love the sport so i want to embrace that and i think uh the way you do it is fantastic you know with all the media stuff that you do and it's very much appreciated and enjoyed by, I think, so many people within the industry, myself included. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's been great fun to have a chat and to catch up and to uh, have a bit of a laugh and go through your career and <laughs> the emotional attachments that you have with those uh, particular machines and, and the sport as a whole. It's been it's been great to talk about and uh, long may it continue. Long may it continue for another 25 years if it happens. So <laughs> hopefully we can still talk about it in another 25 years. Hopefully. Thanks for the chance to chat. I really appreciate sharing my passion with everyone. It was an absolute treat to sit down and chat with Philippa, who gave so many cool and unique stories from the past 25 years of her career. Working with so many well-respected figures within the radio and TV landscape and working with drivers who have gone all the way to the upper echelons of the sport. Just incredible. You can learn more about her company, Media Master Coach, on Facebook and Instagram and also via the Media Master Coach website at www.mediamastercoach.com. And if that's a bit hard for you to find, there's no stress. We've put links up on the show notes via the Motor Dream podcast website at themotordream.com.au. And that is where you can also find previous episodes as well as show information and links to our socials. We're on all the channels and our handle is the Motor Dream, which is also the hashtag. And remember to like and subscribe to the podcast and leave some feedback and maybe even a suggestion on who you'd like me to interview for a future episode. Before I go, I would like to end this episode by paying tribute to a colleague and friend who had her life cruelly taken away a few weeks ago. For those that grew up to Saturday Disney on Channel 7 during the 1990s, Janine Mapp was one of the original hosts with Sophie Formica and James Sherry. Her cheery disposition and positive personality greeted viewers every Saturday from the show's inception in 1990 until she left in October 1996. I became friends with Janine during the COVID-affected year in 2020 via Instagram, and what I had quickly discovered was that she was a big motorsport fan, particularly Formula One. This also extended to being a big Daniel Ricciardo fan. As soon as I reached out to her, we instantly became fast friends because of our passion for Formula One and was a regular listener to the EFTM F1 podcast. She also became a trusted friend. She was excited for what I was doing in terms of the media and my impending marriage 
and expressed interest in partnering up with me to do some media content once life got back to normal. Sadly, we never got the chance to explore that. In late 2021, she told me of her struggles with her kidneys, which had suddenly started to fail and was immediately put on dialysis. Yet through all of this, she remained very positive and was very much hoping that a transplant would improve her life substantially. As time went on, our contact became less frequent because of her ongoing treatment, until I got a call from her husband on the day I was leaving London to return home from my honeymoon that things were bleak. Janine lost her battle to kidney failure on the night of November 16, just a few years shy of reaching 50. Her loss to those that knew her in the media and in life has been quite profound, and I, for one, will miss her terribly. My heartfelt condolences to her husband Lincoln, her son Ben, and to her immediate and extended families and friends. May she rest in peace. (laughs) 